Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are, uh, the end of the third full day of practice. I hope no no pressure, no failing or anything, but I hope you're at this point um, appreciating that you're here. Maybe you're not settled down or as concentrated or as uh, clear as you'd like. Maybe you're still somewhat sleepy or uh, sometimes after uh, after you do settle down, then um, then you have space for stuff to really come up, and some people might be getting in touch with um, emotions and memories. Uh, how many people have been having lots of old memories in their lives? Yeah, and. Uh, Emotions and uh, stuff that kind of comes out of nowhere all of a sudden. Yeah. Right on schedule. That's like that. uh, but I, I hope that you're getting a sense that there is a value and a, and a point to all of this. Uh, because what we're, we're doing here is just learning to relate to it all. Although it's built as an awakening joy retreat, uh, it would be not only unrealistic, but not, not really as rich and beneficial if you sat down and were in bliss from the first moment to uh, the closing bell. Um, if that happens, let me know. I'll maybe use you on the brochure or... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I- even so, that, that's not really what this is about. As I said earlier, uh, people who are somewhat understanding of real happiness are not happy and smiling all the time. They are willing to open up to everything that life gives us. And life gives us what is called in Taoism the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And if we can learn to be with the sorrows and the inevitable suffering, the first noble truth of of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness and, and suffering, if we can learn to be with that in a wise way that's not afraid to open up to those parts of us inside, then we're not afraid of, of the things that usually scare us. And in that opening up to those challenging places, we find underneath that there is a wisdom and a love, a good-heartedness and a peace and a courage and spaciousness that can hold it all. That's really who we are when we're not lost in confusion. 
That's one reason why uh, this, uh, this practice, Vipassana practice, the, uh, the literal translation of Vipassana is to see things clearly, to see things as they really are, not to get lost in our head or our story or our old patterns um, that usually contract us often because they are born out of the grasping mind or the, the aversive mind or the confused mind, but to start to see clearly and not get um, confused by those different states. And out of that seeing clearly, out of the spaciousness that comes from that cultivation, all of those beautiful qualities naturally shine through. Kindness, generosity, gratitude, wisdom, peace, all of the wholesome qualities. And joy naturally shines through as well. I want to uh, just give you a, um, a sense of where we've been and where we're going, the context of the retreat, at least the way I see it. I mentioned early on about those principles about knowing where happiness lies, those wholesome states, and when they're here, to not miss them, as well as learning how to deal with the um, the states of suffering, and that over time, as you practice more and more without a grasping mind, but just kind of get into the habit of seeing the good, letting it touch us, and not being afraid and opening up to uh, to the difficult, um, that you start to naturally shift your default setting. Mm. Just uh, thinking of an of analogy that I like, uh, I, I didn't plan to use, but here it is coming. Um, that uh, I love that Joseph Goldstein uh, talks about as far as this practice goes. You know, people say, gosh, you know, where is this leading? Is, is this really going to get me somewhere? Uh, it's going to get you, I can guarantee, whenever you are, wherever you are, when you become enlightened, if that should be in your karma, it's going to be here and it's going to be now. Uh, but what happens over time is that that place of home becomes more and more where you live from. And this one analogy uh, that, that comes to my mind is of a, a hill. Just imagine a steep hill and in the center, uh, there's a center spot and your task is to put a ball on the center and have it stay there, balanced. If it's a very steep hill, it's not easy to keep that ball there. It will slip off a lot. As you keep on cultivating and deepening your practice, that hill flattens out and you put it on that center spot and it takes a gust of wind to blow it off. And as you deepen your practice, that hill becomes a valley. And 
there that ball is in the center and it might get blown off with a gust of wind, but this is where it comes back to. This is where it returns. And in a way, you can think of your practice both here on the retreat in within these days and over a period of years, you're deepening those grooves, those neural pathways and that habit so that as the Buddha says, whatever we frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of, their, of our minds. Mm-hmm. So those three principles then applied to some wholesome states. We've talked about and explored intention. We've explored and discussed and we'll keep on throughout the retreat um, pointing to the mindfulness, the quality of mindfulness as being the key to opening to the moment in a wise way and to be present for our life. And when there is a a happy uh, moment that mindfulness amplifies that when you're really here for it. The third in that uh, sequence, by the way, the way I... Um, found helpful to put it all together is gratitude because it kind of it opens us up as Jane so beautifully uh, spoke about uh, this afternoon Uh, one one teacher says that gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish you know that when you are grumbling and complaining and you're contracted and you're saying oh this is wrong and that's wrong and too bad about that there's no room for all the goodness to be experienced. But when you more and more abide in a place of gratitude and you're saying, thank you, there's a kind of opening, an opening of the heart that allows you to receive all the blessings in your life. And as, as you saw uh, this afternoon, it's possible to change even even an 89-year-old person who was uh, a kvetch and a, a complainer her whole life, she really did change, by the way. Uh, in fact, I'll just share one, one more little anecdote uh, uh, just to show you, um, just to underscore it, that, that's coming to me. Uh, towards the end, Jane said that she, uh, she had cancer uh, at the end. She was very grateful that she wasn't in a lot of pain uh, so that, that helped things a lot. But there she was, um, not really able to read. Um, she started again to books on tape, not uh, hearing so well unless she had her hearing aids in, and really not getting out of bed for the last, oh, six months. Um, and I, I visited her towards, uh, oh, it was about three weeks towards uh, before the end. I, I did a lot of going down to L.A. and visiting her, and uh, one day I walked into her, uh, one morning I walked into her room um, to say good morning, and she looked really uh, deep in thought, so pensive, just, I, I was, it was just really a, a, a curious expression on her face, just how deep she was. And then she opened her eyes and she could tell I was there, and I said, hi, mom, where where were you? You looked so deep. What were you thinking? And she said, 
actually my mind was devoid of all thought except thank you God, thank you God. I said, wow, mom, can I quote you on that? And she said, will I get a commission? She always had a sense of humor. But it was, it was not, it was not a, a fake. It was the real thing. And she just became lighter and lighter um, over those last years. So gratitude is the, was, is the third. And the, the fourth in this sequence, the way I see it, is um, learning to open up to the difficult stuff. That that is a key, that is a pathway to well-being and joy. I want to talk a little bit about that and a bit about another very key um, wholesome state. Um, by the way, I just want to say the, uh, the fifth was, um, was about... Um, uh, Sila was about um, uh, morality and integrity, and I think um, uh, Deborah had covered some of that yesterday, didn't she? Did she? Was that? Not too much. Not too much. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get some more. Yeah. But um, the fourth one, after gratitude, gratitude gives you the container. It gives you the spaciousness to process all the difficulty. And in one of the Buddhist teachings that I love, um, called the, the very um, esoteric and, and fancy name, uh, Transcendental Dependent Arising, you can impress your friends with that one, um, he says that suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. That suffering can lead to faith. Not always, but he said it can. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy, can lead to happiness, contentment, peace, equanimity, all the way up to full awakening. But it starts out on this list Suffering can lead to faith. Isn't that interesting? You might say, well, how does that work? But let me just ask you, how many people here were, have been motivated by their own pain, sorrow, or suffering to look for answers and meaning to life that is more than just uh, uh, what we usually think of will lead to happiness. How many people have been motivated to go for the spiritual life? Look around. That's how it works. So when you're in the middle of, of a hard time, it can be so, uh, so understandable and easy to think, there's something wrong here. I must be doing something wrong. Why is this happening to me? But it's generally through those hard times that we grow. It's not that you're looking for those hard times. But when they're here, and we all get our own measure of it, 
in this lifetime. When they're here, rather than thinking this must be some mistake, to learn to open up and hold it and grow through it and feel deep compassion through it and feel, as Jane was sharing in the self-compassion practice, oh, I'm not alone. This is part of life. The more we can open up to that, the more um, courageous we are, as I said a little while ago. Here's, uh, if I can find it here. Here's a a poem that I love that, um, that points to this by um, Jennifer Wellwood called Unconditional. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. What what beautiful lines. That's what we're learning here. And so, you know, you you don't want to go in over your head. And it's not like you've got to say, you know, okay, you know, I'm thinking the old Janis Joplin song, you know, Take it, take another little piece of my heart. You don't need to go there. But to see little by little, to see how much you can open up to when you have the courage and you feel enough groundedness and feel enough support. Little by little, we're learning to open up and welcome it all. So this is about embracing the whole package. Tonight, I really want to talk about our relationship to ourselves, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the sublime, embracing the whole package. It's not that you can just say, oh, I want some, I want some happiness here and just let's leave the rest. The, the Buddha has this teaching, in this fathom-long body, I didn't say this, did I? No, not here. In this fathom-long body, <laughs> I keep on wondering, uh, give or take a foot and a half standard deviation, you know, or so, maybe two feet or more. 
In this fathom-long body, as the, the words say, the whole of life is revealed. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end of suffering. This is your laboratory to understand the human experience. And the more you can understand and make friends with it all in here, not only make friends with the, the, the difficult stuff, but see the beautiful stuff, the more you see this one, the more you get a sense of the, the situation that we're all in. You're discovering the human experience and in that, the barriers start to lift between you and everybody else. So what we're first um, asked to do is to relate to this mind-body experience, which is what you're doing when you're taking your seat or your cushion. Oh, let me be with it all. And there you are. You might say, well, what's the point? You know, I'm not getting anywhere. You know, I'm just sitting here and all kinds of things come. You know, and they don't stay. That, that's the point. All kinds of things come and go. And you can find a stillness right in the middle of it. Where you can be open to it all. And there you are centered and saying yes to it all. To the degree that you're able to. And when you say no, not now. Just knowing that it is um, on the horizon. That the more you can open up to the whole experience. That's where real freedom is. So having this healthy relationship with ourself. It's not that it stops there, it starts there, and then from there, you can then, uh, it enhances your relationship to everything and everyone around you, and helps you feel connected and want to engage with life around you. There's a, a line by um, Robert Bly, uh, the great poet and, um, and, and commentator on poetry. Uh, he says, um, every part of our personality that we do not learn to embrace will become hostile to us. If we hate our anger, it'll be our enemy instead of our teacher. If we uh, get frustrated at our sadness or our loneliness or our lust or our pettiness, all of those things become the enemy, what we're afraid to encounter. But if we can open up and really say, yes, this too is part of being human, then not only do we transform our relationship to it, but we don't um, take it quite so personally. And that's really what we're learning here, 
Because when we separate ourselves out and say, oh, well, look at poor me, then we feel disconnected from everyone, don't we? And when you can shift your response to all this stuff that goes on in this crazy thing we call the mind, if you can make the change, the shift from, gosh, look at my mind, to, wow, look at the mind. And you take out the my part, and you can even have a sense of humor and say, wow, look at the mind. Holy cow. It's amazing. You know, you know that uh, Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. You know. In one day, how many different moods have you had today? How many different thoughts have you had? You know, can you point to any one of them and say, oh, that's me. Yeah, that's really me. They're all just coming and going on their own. And so there you are learning to look at it all and have compassion for the habits that have been developed and have appreciation for all the goodness and the beauty inside. So learning to work with those difficulties and we've been doing that and Jane gave a lovely talk on the hindrances last night and, and Deborah on working with emotions, any emotion can be either held with self-compassion or be explored with uh, a wise mindful attention using the, the RAIN acronym or whatever helps you see clearly without getting caught. Um, that's a very essential step. But if it's only coming to terms with all the yucky stuff inside, this would be a very depressing practice and path. There's more to it than that. That's key. That's essential. But there's good news beyond that. There is the Buddha right inside. And so a key step, a key piece in this all is learning to truly love ourselves. That's the other piece of the equation of this healthy relationship with ourselves. Not just to put up with the, with the bad stuff, but to go deeper than that and really see who we are. This is the good news. <clears throat> this is, uh, let's see. This is from Nyoshal Kempo, uh, a great Tibetan master who says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment 
other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. That's the way. And here's a, since I have it right here, uh, a, a beautiful quote, maybe some of you are familiar with, by Martha Graham to um, uh, the great choreographer to uh, Agnes DeMille, another great dancer. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And since there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. I love that image, to keep the channel open because in that you can see it's not so much, oh, look at me, you know. My pure awareness is better than yours. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> Did you say, yes, um, I'd like a whole lot of pure awareness, please. You know, It just shines through you. Can you say, my unconditional love is better than yours? It doesn't make sense. It's just something you've been gifted with. And so there's this kind of dance. It's both uniquely yours, a unique expression of life that's never been here before, and it's not yours. It's life using you. You are an expression of life. It's not that life is happening to you, although on one level, yeah, life is happening to you, but on a much more profound level, life is happening through you. Life is expressing itself through you or as you. So how to get in touch with this sense, real embodied understanding of who you really are. You might be hearing and knowing all the words and saying, oh yeah, that would be a really good thing to like myself, you know. Maybe not this lifetime, but uh, sometime sooner or later, you know. Don't sell yourself short. I'm here to tell you, if somebody said when I first started this, it's actually possible to love oneself, let alone like oneself, uh, I would have said, I don't, I don't think not this lifetime. Because I was in a lot of pain. I really, I, I didn't like myself very much. I was really shy. I, looking in the mirror, I winced for a good part of my uh, my earlier years, it's possible. It's really possible. And sometimes if you're in a lot of pain, you are that much more motivated to look for answers. When I first 
heard the teachings. This is in 1974 at uh, at, uh, Naropa, uh, the first summer at Naropa. And there I was sitting and I ended up, well, I asked asked Ramdas, what should I do about uh, who, uh, Ramdas who wrote the book Be Here Now, which I carried around like a Bible for about three years. And then I finally met him and I said, what should I do as far as meditation? I knew that he'd recommended, he said, go check that guy Goldstein out, he's pretty good. And I sat there in that first class and something about the way he was the way he was, besides what he was saying, I felt that there was really something here. And he was saying, it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thought patterns. I never thought that was remotely (laughs) a a possibility before. And I believed him. I said, I'm going for it. I didn't know where else to go. I'm going for that. And it's a lot, it's all about practice, about intention and practice. So I want to talk a bit about perhaps how you can start to see yourself through um, a different lens than not being enough, which is a, a basic um, Um, common human condition that somehow we're told that we're uh, or we're taught uh, oh there's something wrong with me we've taken in that message whether it's from bullies or uh, or uh, authority figures who uh, we've gotten somewhat traumatized by or all the different ways you, you look at uh, uh, Madison Avenue and, and see all the messages that say, oh, I'm not thin enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not powerful enough or I'm not whatever enough. And so that's a disease of our culture. So to have the idea, yeah, that would be a good idea, but to really embody it, that's a whole other thing. But it's really possible. Um, I'm thinking now a story that uh, maybe some are familiar with of uh, the Dalai Lama um, who came to um, my second three-month retreat in, uh, at IMS, uh, Insight Meditation Society, in 1979 that Howie was on uh, with, with us. And um, at the end of the retreat, the Dalai Lama came It was a great way to end a retreat, by the way. (laughs) He had just come to the States for the first time a few few months before. And there was this question and answer period. And somebody uh, uh, asked him, what do you do about self-hatred? And it took a while for the translator to actually communicate the the concept. And then he got it. Self-hatred. He said... He looked at this guy and said, you're wrong. You're absolutely (laughs) wrong. Imagine sitting for two and a half months and the Dalai Lama says, you're wrong. But he said it with tremendous compassion. And he said something like that I recall, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of the universe and somehow you don't belong, that you're a mistake? You're wrong. Uh, Sometimes I think, well, yeah, if you were 
told since the time you were one and a half that you are the embodiment, the bodhisattva of infinite <laughs> compassion, you got a pretty good self-image, you know. Uh, and Tibetans do seem to have more natural um, connection themselves. But in the West, it's not, it's not so easy. So how to, how, to, how to develop this, how to approach this? First of all, something to, to see and understand within ourselves is that Besides the fact, remember I said at the beginning, who doesn't want to be happy and we all want to be happy? To really go one step further and see there is something inside of you that is rooting for your happiness. As misguided as it might be, and often it is, oh, this is going to feel good. (laughs) What was I thinking? But if you take a look, and don't take my word for it, check it out for yourself, you'll see likely that everything you do is motivated by some sense that this is going to make me feel a little bit better or this is going to make me feel a little less bad. And as we all know, how often we uh, are mistaken, mistaken for where happiness really lies. And we do things uh, that say, oh, this will make me feel good for a moment. And not realizing that in the long run, there's a price to pay. That's why it's so crucial to see where happiness really lies in those wholesome states, not in the, the gold shivers that, uh, that Jane read about last night. That's what everything in our, our society says. You need this to make you happy, where really it's, oh, it's more from the inside. Happiness is an inside job. It's a title of, of, of one of Sylvia's books. Happiness is an inside job. But to really see that something in you is rooting for your happiness, that's a really wholesome thing to consider. It means there's, there's a place in you that is really looking out for your well-being. It just gets confused and misguided. But this whole practice is about accessing that this and mm, uh, really uh, uh, recognizing and acknowledging it and then seeing where happiness really lies and going for it. Mm. But when you, when you do that, um, you're going to see uh, when you really pay attention, when you're willing to pay attention, you'll see everything that gets in the way of that. So that's where, you know, you have to really find that place of, of openness and equanimity. But it also starts with forgiving yourself for being just right where you are. Because you are a product of your conditioning. You are... Uh, 
a product of your genetics and your temperament and your upbringing and the circumstances that have affected you, all of that. And if you could do it better, you would probably. So first to forgive yourself for all the places that you see that you don't either measure up or that you've done things unskillfully. It's never too late. It's never too late to see and to notice your basic intention, your sincerity uh, to wake up. And if it's stuff that's happened in the past, don't keep on beating yourself up for that. There's no end to this. As, as the famous line goes, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. You'll never change it around, but you can learn to grow from everything that's happened. And this is one of the teachings of the Buddha. He says, if you've done something unskillful, instead of beating yourself up, and you saw it today, I come from a lineage of guilt, right? (laughs) Guilt is just self-perpetuating. You know, I really am a rotten person. And then you go ahead and and do something else that's not so smart or else you just keep on beating yourself up for things that have happened in the past or for whatever uh, your, your life is manifesting. But rather, he says, to learn from the past and to commit to doing it a new way in the future. Then, uh, or as one of my inspirations, Julia Butterfly Hill says, as long as you're learning, there are no mistakes. As long as you're learning, don't waste the mistakes by saying, oh, what a jerk I was and I'll always be a jerk. Oh, I want to do it a different way, a new way. So forgiveness, we don't have... uh, time now for a forgiveness practice, but um, maybe we'll do some before uh, in the next couple of days. And then it's actually seeing the goodness, seeing the beauty in us. And that can be cultivated rather than noticing what's wrong. And I, I often read this, uh, this passage that Jack has in one of his books, uh, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness and Peace where uh, he, he talks about this tribe in Africa, the Babemba tribe. He, he says, uh, and this is supposedly so, the Babemba tribe in Africa, uh, when, when a person acts unskillfully and irresponsibly, they are, um, all work stops, and they are put in the center with everyone in the village around them and each person in the circle then tells that person who has transgressed all of their good qualities. Every good thing that they can recount and recall is, uh, is, is um, presented uh, for, uh, for with each person doing that and each telling them the good things 
that that person has done. And it says, this tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end of it, the circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is welcomed back into the tribe. Pretty good tribe to hang out with, isn't it? Doesn't that make sense? If you keep on telling somebody how bad you are, that's what they believe. But if they can hear, or just be reminded of their goodness, then that's what is brought out in them. So one practice that I want to share with you is the loving kindness practice um, and directing it towards ourselves. And uh, as we talked about the loving kindness practice, you know, may you be happy, may you be safe, and you're saying uh, programming good things uh, and, and, and programming your mind and your heart to open up to the good. Uh, and it starts in the classic loving kindness practice with, with yourself and then you direct it towards a, a benefactor and then a loved one and then a neutral person and then a difficult person and then all beings. So you start out with yourself. And I had a very um, powerful mm, shift in this practice that I want to share with you in, in a moment. Uh, one um, period of practice that I was, I was doing at... Um, uh, at IMS, uh, this is about 20 years or so ago, where I, um, I decided to do six weeks of Brahma Vihara practice, which includes loving kindness and compassion and uh, joy and equanimity. And the first week, it's recommended, it was recommended to me, to just spend on sending loving kindness to myself which can often be really hard, you know. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you see your goodness, yeah, right, you know. Or you, often you see all the things that you've done wrong in your life, they kind of surface, it's a natural thing. Anyway, I was doing a week of loving kindness and it was going okay. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. I wasn't giving myself a hard time and I, was just saying it, okay, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. And it was okay. It wasn't really great. And then after about three days, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. There's no doubt about it. This person, I could just, they came to my, I could feel their love. Wow, that person really loves me. And then I thought, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I magically connected the dots. And I said, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And this is how I hit upon something that was transformative in my own, my own practice. And I want to share it with you right now. So if you would sit up and just try this, give this a try. Sometimes it's hard to get a sense of who we are, but 
um, another perspective can be helpful. So, um, as you sit here, like you to bring some being to mind. It can be a friend, a loved one, it can be a child, it can be a pet, a dog or a cat uh, who you're close with and have a really warm, easy, loving relationship. It could be somebody from your past if nobody comes to mind right now. It's okay. And just imagine that they're here right in front of you maybe looking back and smiling at you, saying, oh, thanks for picking me. And there they are as you sense them. And just for a few moments, feel that special energy that you share when you're together. It's just there when the two of you are connecting. And first, let yourself enjoy that. Isn't it amazing we can feel that between two people? And then as they're there smiling at you, connecting with you, just imagine you can move your consciousness so that it inhabits their reality and looking at you through their eyes. See what they see. See who they see when they're with their dear friend that they enjoy so much. Really get who you are. Notice all the qualities, maybe your playfulness or your silliness or your kindness and caring or your... um, creativity, all of it. Notice all of it, the essence of you that shines through. And as you're looking through their eyes, just get who you are. And see, is this person worthy of happiness and love? Probably. That's what they wish for you. You might, from that vantage point, send yourself some love. Oh, may you see how good you are, dear. And now, let your consciousness move from their vantage point and let it come back right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected to those beautiful qualities. And from the inside, get who you are, what shines out without you even realizing it, and wish yourself well. May I see all the goodness inside. Or may you, if you want to do it as a second person, May you share your love well or see all your beautiful qualities. May you be happy. 
and really enjoy it. Maybe just getting a glimpse for a few moments. Okay, you can open your eyes. If you just got even a glimpse, that's enough. Then you can't pretend you're not worthy of love anymore or of happiness. And if you didn't, if that somehow didn't work for you, there's no failing this. It's just, this is a place that you really um, are called to practice more and more until you get and see what those who care about you see. Because the more you see it, the more everybody else gets to experience the benefit and the blessings of it. So this is not a self-indulgent exercise. This is the key to it all. There's a beautiful teaching in, uh, in Zen by Dogen, the great Zen master. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. And what does that mean? To study Buddhism is to study the self. That is, as we're practicing here, the Dharma, this is the laboratory, the mind-body process, studying the self. To study the self is to forget the self. After a while, you don't have to be so self-absorbed or see, oh, it's, what about me? I'm not good enough. You see, oh, I'm really okay. And you don't have to be so self-focused. You can forget the self. And to forget the self, then you become intimate with all things. And when you see yourself, it's not that you've got to be the best in the world. You know, when I had that deep experience of, of seeing myself through my friend's eyes, it wasn't like, God, you are some amazing human being. It was actually just, you know, you're really okay. That was it. That was it. You know, you're a decent guy. Who knew that's all you needed? Same with you. You don't have to be the best and the most gorgeous and the most brilliant or whatever. Just a good-hearted, decent human being that loves to love and loves to be more conscious that's enough. And if you discovered some like, someone like that, you'd love to be there and be with them. And I often say this, suppose you met somebody who really understood where you were coming from, who, who liked your taste and loved your sense of humor and who really got your hopes and your fears and your take on things, who really got it. How would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Wouldn't it be great? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. They happen to be right inside your skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? <laughs> 
Don't miss who you are. Start getting it. And as you start getting it, you can relax and just be yourself because it's quite enough. You are more than enough. And I'll, I'll close with uh, a poem I love uh, about this called Awakening Now by Dana Falls. She says, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. (laughs) Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your evening. Enjoy the 15 or 17 minutes or so before uh, the next sitting. Let yourself enjoy just being you. It's enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.